through the hallways of academia and on the face of the moon the footprints of conquest haven't left us any room to say Greetings, and welcome to the 14th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. This is Thistle Patterson. Today's podcast is about lesbians, mothers, activists, lovers, and sisters. We'll talk with Jocelyn McDonald, DC-based writer and activist, Julie Bindell, journalist and feminist activist, and lesbian feminist writer Bev Joe. Enjoy music from Alex Dobkin and Marka Cassidy, and this month's commentary from our in-house rad femme writer and critical thinker, Sekhmet Shiaul. But first, the headlines as read by Niall Pierce. OLOC, Old Lesbians Organizing for Change, is holding their next biannual national gathering for lesbians ages 60 and up at the Holiday Inn Tampa West Shore in the Tampa Bay area of Florida from August 2nd through the 6th. With workshops and panels, keynote speakers Ubaka Hill and Kitty Tsui, access services, entertainment including Mimi Gonzalez, dance, films, a talent show, and a presentation of the Del Martin Old Lesbian Pride Award, and so much more. The theme is Old Lesbians Mobilize for the Future. OLOC is also hosting an intensive day for old lesbians of color on Wednesday, August 2nd. It is open to all old lesbians of color whether or not you attend the national gathering or are an OLOC member. Women of all ages are welcome to certain events, so be sure to visit OLOC.org and click on their events tab or contact info at OLOC.org for more information. Thistle Pedersen is raising funds to file a defamation lawsuit against the Wisconsin Network for Peace and Justice. Eight of WNPJ's board members released a defaming statement against Ms. Pedersen on February 3rd. Ms. Pedersen has endured hate speech, campaigns to get her fired from her job, human feces sent anonymously to her in the mail, and vicious attacks on her reputation after holding up a sign at the Women's March on January 21st in Madison that said, Don't believe the hype. Transactive is misogyny. To learn more about Ms. Pedersen's case or to donate to the fundraiser, go to the GoFundMe page called Support Women's Rights, Free Speech at GoFundMe.com. 
On June 10th, join your sisters in Seattle for a ride against femicide, a cooperative effort by producers of the documentary film Daughters of Femicide and female motorcycle collective The Litas. The ride seeks to raise awareness of femicide in addition to sex trafficking, domestic violence, sexual violence, child marriages, and honor and gender preferences over females that claim the lives of women and girls daily. In this motorcycle ride against femicide in Seattle, you'll help raise money to spread awareness against femicide and help women and families escape domestic violence through local women's shelters. The ride is open to riders and non-riders of both sexes. For more information on the ride and the film, visit daughtersoffemicide.com. Last month, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie vetoed a bill that would have made New Jersey the first state to outlaw child marriages in the U.S. Sponsored and co-sponsored by a combination of over 40 assembly people and senators from across the state, the bill would have made marriage and civil union illegal for those under the age of 18. Christie's veto came with a suggestion that marriages for 16- and 17-year-olds would be approved pending on judicial review, and is quoted as saying, quote, an exclusion without a exceptions would violate the cultures and traditions of some communities in New Jersey based on religious traditions, unquote. While he did not specify which religions those are, child marriages are known to occur across the three major belief systems, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Assemblywoman Nancy Munoz was the bill's top sponsor, and it was written with the help of Frady Reese, founder of the New Jersey-based charity Unchained at Last, which seeks to end the tradition of forced and arranged marriages and enable women women to leave said marriages. Unchained at last estimates that nearly a quarter of a million children, mostly female, were wed in the United States between 2000 and 2010. From the International Women's Health Coalition, quote, child marriage effectively ends a girl's childhood, curtails her education, minimizes her economic opportunities, increases her risk of domestic violence, and puts her at risk for early, frequent, and very high-risk pregnancies. Child brides are often unable to negotiate safer sexual practices and are therefore at a higher risk of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, unquote. Similar child marriage bills have since been introduced in California, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. On Saturday, May 6th, thousands of Venezuelan women took to the streets in the country's capital to march against socialist repression, or more specifically, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Many of the women who marched dressed in white, some went topless, some carried flowers. They sang their national anthem and demanded elections that had been previously postponed. The protesting women faced tear gas, armored tanks, and what appeared to be mostly female battalion of security forces. Some women implored security officers to join the opposition, with one woman asking, quote, what will you tell your kids later on? Unquote. The Women's March was the latest in a continuous series of protests that began in January, but reached a fever pitch in April. The Venezuelan government has branded protesters terrorists, pointing to some opportunistic looting taking place around protests, and have organized their own pro-government marches as a rebuttal to the opposition. The IMF estimates inflation rates of over 700% this year, and severe economic depression has led to food and medicine shortages in the country. Maduro's dictatorship has 
stalled elections, blatantly ignored election results, and made repeated decisions that violate the Venezuelan constitution. In 2015, four opposition lawmakers won seats in the National Assembly, only to be stripped of their seats and their ability to oppose Maduro the following year. Protests have been met with military resistance in what U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley described as a, quote, violent crackdown, unquote, that has led to scores of people being killed and injured. Earlier this year, the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists released new guidelines that limit interventions in the birthing process for low-risk pregnancies. These include allowing women to change positions during labor, employing non-pharmacologic labor and pain management techniques, delaying admission to labor and delivery during the initial latent phase of labor, one-to-one emotional support in addition to regular nursing care, a de-emphasis on amniotomy, and also the imperative to deliver in the event of a premature membrane rupture, reduced and intermittent fetal monitoring, and a rest period between phases of labor. For more information and explanation of these guidelines, visit acog.org and search for Approaches to Limit Intervention During Labor and Birth. A new lawsuit filed against Baylor University this past May alleges that several members of their football team committed heinous sexual crimes in what is erroneously being categorized as, quote, hazing. This isn't the first lawsuit to expose and address the situation at Baylor. Allegations have become numerous over the past five years. In addition to accusations of gang rape, the suit also discloses dogfighting and burglaries of hostess programs arranged by coaching staff, sorted recruitment methods, and university attempts to suppress complaints and thwart investigations. Ken Starr, the university's president at the time, has been removed by Baylor and replaced with interim president David Garland, who, in light of the Big 12 conference imposing multi-million dollar sanctions against the school, has promised full and complete cooperation with a third-party investigation into the scandal. Patty Crawford, Baylor's Title IX coordinator from November 2014 until October of last year, resigned after what she described as a, quote, top-down, unquote, culture of repressing information, delaying investigations, victim blaming, and an administrative preoccupation with reputation. Indeed, in May of 2016, Pepper Hamilton, a private law firm hired by Baylor to investigate the school's handling of sexual assault, released their findings that, among a multitude of other issues, quote, Baylor's efforts to implement Title IX were slow, ad hoc, and hindered by a lack of institutional support and engagement by senior leadership. Pepper also found examples of actions by two university administrators that directly discouraged complainants from reporting and participating in student conduct processes, or that contributed to or accommodated a hostile environment. Pepper found specific failings within both the football program and athletics department leadership, including a failure to identify and respond to a pattern of sexual violence by a football player, to take action in response to reports of a sexual assault by multiple football players, and to take action in response to a report of dating violence. Pepper's findings also reflect significant concerns about the tone and culture within Baylor's football program as it relates to accountability for all forms of athlete misconduct, unquote. The full report is available through Baylor.edu. In an interview with 60 Minutes, Senior Vice President and CFO Reagan Ramsauer fumbles through his explanation of why one particular report filed with campus police in 2013 wasn't investigated for a full year after its filing. You have a police report. There was a police report, uh, I suppose it uh, stayed with the police department. It never came out of the police department. That was, uh, that was a significant failure to respond by our police department. There's no doubt about it. Victim blaming would be one answer. The other answer, I'll go back to it, is protecting the football team. 
and protecting that brand. I don't believe that was at all the reason. Uh, I, I really think that it was probably feeling like, uh, and, and whether or not, I, I don't know what was said if they did talk to the, to the victim. I, I don't. I well, don't they did that. talk to the victim. There's no question. It's a detailed police report. Right. There was a Title IX case that was actually opened up. We, we opened that up, uh, and that was when I learned about it. And at that time, we, we took the appropriate actions, and, and uh, eventually uh, he was found responsible. Eventually he was, but in 2014, Trayvon Armstead was all Big 12 tight end. Uh, that, 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 that would be true. After three years in captivity, Islamist group Boko Haram has released 82 of the Chibuk schoolgirls kidnapped in 2014. Of the original 276, 57 were able to escape almost immediately following the abduction. Last October, the Nigerian government negotiated another 21 girls to be released, a deal that was made without having to free any imprisoned Boko Haram fighters, according to Nigerian Information Minister Lai Mohammed. Months of intensified fighting and stalled negotiations led the Swiss and the Red Cross, who have been mediating talks between Boko Haram and the Nigerian government to leverage imprisoned Boko Haram in exchange for the 82 freed girls. A post to the country's Federal Ministry of Information and Culture website states, quote, After months of patient negotiations, our security agencies have taken back these abducted girls in exchange for some Boko Haram suspects held by the authorities, unquote. Al Jazeera has reported that five commanders were exchanged in this most recent negotiation. It is estimated that up to 2,000 children have been captured since 2014, according to the Human Rights Watch. In December, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari spoke at the Dakar International Forum on Peace and Security in Africa, assuring fellow heads of state that Nigerian security has significantly improved and that multinational cooperation in the region has led to Boko Haram rapidly losing ground and, in some cases, surrendering. Misery for Profit, Who is Funding the Transgender Movement and the Impact on LGB, a panel discussion planned for the 2017 Left Forum Conference at John Jay College, has been canceled due to what is described as, quote, complaints about the panel, unquote, to Left Forum staff, board, and volunteers via email and social media contact. A conference brochure outlined the panel thusly, quote, we will be showing that immense funding funneled to the transgender movement is coming from giant pharmaceutical and biotech technology industries and what their aim is. We will also be showing how the corporately controlled media is interfaced with the same industries and are blocking any alternative to the pro-trans propaganda now being disseminated. We will be showing that the transgender movement is not, in fact, a civil rights issue, but a business arrangement and an advertising arm of these industries. We will cover the implications of this on the LGB community and show how transgender is a political coup, positioned as an ally alongside LGB, but are actually a homophobic element introduced by the 1% to control homosexuality, reinstate male supremacy, and utilize gay children as fodder for scientific experimentation. Unquote. In an email sent to the panel's organizer, Jennifer Bielek, the Left Forum staff writes, quote, Unfortunately, in the vetting and notification process, the panel fell through the cracks, so to speak, as did its presence on our website and the automated emails that generated. This panel was never officially approved for our Left Forum 2017 program and, as is such, will not be included in our conference this year. Our apologies for any confusion and or inconvenience. If you and or your panelists have already registered for this year's conference and would like a refund, we will certainly provide, unquote. According to Billick, she 
did indeed receive an email confirming the acceptance of the panel to the conference. She was notified of the June 2nd panel's cancellation via email on May 28th. At Left Forum's 2016 conference, she organized the panel, quote, Gender Identity Under Male Supremacy, unquote, which, interestingly enough, was not denied a platform. Support women's First Amendment right to free speech by reaching out to Left Forum and letting them know that silencing dissension never led to anyone's liberation. In the middle of the country, in the middle of the woods, in the middle of my life, I'm in the middle of you, and I am breaking curses laid on me long ago about being a woman, about how I should love. But I know how to love Oh, I know how to love, yeah Five thousand miles Ten thousand prayers And a million heartbreaks Have landed me right here And you are so together Somehow you are mine Shape-shifting in the firelight Healing all the time you know how to love Yes, sisters, you know how to love, yeah I've been working hard to face my greatest fears I've been walking cold and lonely on a train of my own tears but You got warm water, and you got cedar smoke You got hearts like drum beats on the buffalo road you know how to love Oh women, you know how to love, yeah I'm headed out to find myself again With my sisters in the fern grows In a place called Michigan, yeah For 40 years now, the fire has been stoked For a woman like me, there's no reason to be cold middle of the country, in the middle of the woods, in the middle of my life, I'm in the middle of you, and we are breaking curses, laid on us every day, about being women, born women, and our lesbian ways, yeah, but we know how to love, all sisters, we know how to love, That was How to Love by Marka Cassidy. Up next, Thistle Pedersen talks with Jocelyn McDonald. Jocelyn McDonald is a D.C.-based writer, poet, and podcaster who runs a women's hostel that caters to the needs and pleasures of women traveling. She will perform her poetry at Wolf Fest 2017. Stay tuned to our Interviews tab for the full interview to be released sometime this month. Tell us a little bit about who you are your career, how you got to where you are now, and then later on we can hear some of your poetry. Yeah, great. Well, I am a writer and a poet, and my work has always focused on somatic themes and body themes. And so when I was bisexual, 
a lot of my poems were about male violence and rape because that was my like regular reality. I think most women who are heterosexual or bisexual have experiences that are on the spectrum of non-consent, whether they're ready to call that rape or whether they're referring to just negative experiences that they had with men violating their boundaries. So much of my work focused on the experiences within that spectrum. And now all I write is lesbian erotica and lesbian erotic poems and essays about being a lesbian and I don't know if this is like a phase in my life just because I very recently came to this self-awareness and self-understanding of myself as a, as a lesbian. Can you talk about how becoming a lesbian has been a personal journey and about an awakening and like you were saying it's erotic but it's also you been a political journey. Can you talk about that? Mm. Well, yeah, I've always been a radical feminist ever since I was a child. I, I grew up evangelical, evangelical Christian, and so my family was super conservative about women's roles. However, what they said didn't line up with what they did. So the women were always very powerful figures. The majority of financial earnings and not just my family but my extended family my attitude is always like where are these men who are caretakers or dominant in any way like where are these men that are worthy of being in charge i don't see that happening all i see is amazing powerful women who are being told to make themselves smaller and quieter i went from being a susan b anthony type of feminist like what we need is equal rights to like what the fuck is with the control of women's bodies and where does this come from it all stems from this biological underpinning of our bodies as exploitable whether it's rape or free labor or motherhood, compulsory or having that motherhood denied because you're, you know, looked at as genetically or socially inferior, all of it comes back to the unfortunate coincidence of having been born with two X chromosomes. What is that? That's completely unjust. So have you found one of your poems, sister? Yeah, I have found a couple of poems. So I'm going to read a poem called Say Her. I withhold saying this person, worrying my mom would bury herself in her room beneath red wine and baby pictures. Go silent or tell me I'll meet a man who leaves me with dinner and presents. After years, I uncover enough to say her. She leaves me. And then she runs her fingers through my hair, holds me against her breast bites my thighs until the only pronoun fitting is we, us, ours. I say her. It's preferred by her that my hip friends say they anyway, as if menswear seared off 35 years of that rare female body underneath, as if I were straight again, or as straight as I let my mom think, with this person, the one who I daydream about tasting, wake nights so I have more time to savor the memory of her orange juice acidity. And what about me, so easily called she? I'm not quite they with my je ne sais queer, some ineffable femininity I carry, even when I quit wearing eyeliner, stop saying I'm sorry. 
See, words matter. So say what these pronouns really mean. I am more woman than her. She is more dyke than me. Thank you. Right on. So is there a strong lesbian feminist presence at Wolffest? Can you talk a little bit about the fest? So the first Wolffest was very lesbian-focused in my experience, but I think that might have been because I traveled there with lesbians and camped with lesbians and led a lesbian workshop about political lesbians as a concept and historical movement. And because I attended a talk by Max Sashu, which was all about the sacred feminine. And so I had a very lesbian experience at, at Wolfest. Yeah, it was political. It was flirty. It was embodied. It was great. And I think that one of the things that I've heard online is a lot of criticisms that Wolf is not lesbian-focused because not enough of the organizers are lesbians, which is, to me, really lesbophobic and misogynist because there are lesbians on the board of Wolf and there are lesbians who organize Wolf Fest. So it's kind of like, who are you calling not a lesbian? Who are you calling not gay enough? Like, does a woman have to be gay married? Does a woman have to be like... (laughs) in the middle of eating a pussy for you to believe that she's a dyke? Like, what Like what? What do you mean she's not gay? Like, that's what queers do to us. That's what, fucking, that's what fucking queers do to us, you know? Like, you're not really the thing that you say you are. And that's what religious traits do to us. You're not really the thing that yeah, you but say that you are. It's out of the base, whatever. To them, which is so ironic. <laughs> women who have been had partnered in the past or who have been bisexual or are bisexual and it is so harmful to say that those women are not lesbian now and because any woman can be a lesbian. Is there anything else you would like to share with your sisters who are largely lesbian feminists and radical feminists listening to WLRN in this program about lesbians and lesbian relationships? Yeah, I think that the one thing that I want, the other thing I want to offer is an unpopular opinion. Hashtag unpopular opinion. Uh, Radical feminists and lesbian feminists, like all groups, can get stuck into a mindset of ideological purity and cultish thinking where we all hold on to the value that we that we all agree on what are very polarizing issues like butch femme or kink or you know who's a real lesbian and who's a patriarchal a patriarchal loyalist or a handmaiden i think that these are really toxic patterns to fall into because it scares women it makes women afraid to speak or think for themselves. And, you know, it's, it's not helpful to sexual, personal, or movement liberation to have the same ideas and, and to work on maintaining political purity. And so one of the things that I experience in lesbian community because so much of our lesbian community happens online because it has to because, you know, our spaces have been destroyed and our culture has been erased and we're told, you know, that we if we even identify as lesbians that we're outmoded and backwards. I see women 
getting into vicious fights with one another when they disagree about these issues or not speaking their mind for fear of being ostracized. And if we, just as we were saying before, women are constantly told under patriarchy to be smaller, to take up less space. We stand in the way of our own liberation by by falling into that pattern among ourselves, by kicking each other out and by silencing each other and by focusing on each other's political impurity rather than society's hatred of us. And when we keep our energy focused on male violence and heterosexual or heteronormativity and lesbophobia from outside the community, when mm-hmm. instead of on our sisters and how pure they are in the radical feminist or lesbian feminist ideologies and ideas and whatnot. And we just focus in, especially in our women-only spaces, on the love that we feel for one another. Mm -hmm. That's beyond words, you know, and beyond arguments and discussions. If we can can keep our arguments and our discussions focused on the male violence, it's going to be powerful. Totally. So speak out, speak over, speak under, speak Speak loud so I can hear you. I want to know you. I want to hear your real voice. I want to hear your real voice. Your real voice. Your real voice. Your real WLRN was also able to speak with Julie Bindell on the hot topic of lesbianism. Julie Bindell is a journalist, writer, broadcaster, and researcher. She has authored over 30 book chapters and academic reports on a range of topics pertaining to gender inequality and abuse, and writes regularly for The Guardian newspaper, The New Statesman, Sunday Telegraph, and Standpoint magazines. She also appears regularly on the BBC and Sky News. Here's a portion of the interview WLRN did with Julie for this edition of our podcasts. Tell us your coming out story. How old were you when you came out? What were the circumstances? Just tell us a little bit about yourself as a lesbian. I grew up in a working class community in the northeast of England in the 1960s. I was born in 1962. And I went to a school where there were very low expectations of its students and very few opportunities for girls and boys, but even fewer for girls. I was envious of the freedom and fun that boys had in relation to girls, although I didn't articulate it in a political way, of course, uh, having no formal education, not having met any other feminists or lesbians who would speak critically about heterosexual culture. And then I met lesbians when I was 15 years old. I was working in a hair salon uh, on a Saturday, met a young gay man who took me to gay clubs. And I was lucky because I met feminists who were also lesbians. And so the two, for me, have always been indivisible. I cannot separate lesbianism from feminism. It's about the liberation of women. Earlier, you expressed that your parents were concerned about you being a lesbian because you had already come from a background of being working class and life being difficult, and they were worried that becoming lesbian would make life even harder Does a lesbian lifestyle, especially 
in today's world make it harder for women in some ways? And how does it make it better for women? Well, under patriarchy, obviously being a lesbian makes it harder. It makes it more difficult. It brings up additional problems for women. And if you're black, it's a little worse because racism is thrown in to that. And if you're working class and poor, again, it makes it that little bit worse. But it's always about the oppression of women. Anti-lesbianism comes from misogyny, um, as does homophobia, anti-gay male sentiment. My my mom was worried about me having a hard life when she realized that I wanted to live as a lesbian out and proud. But... I would have had a very much harder life in many ways had I chosen the path of heterosexuality. So for me, it's about liberation and being a lesbian is liberatory. But because of prejudice and anti-lesbianism and misogyny, then there are problems in the way. But so there are for being a woman and speaking out. Do you have any advice for women who may just be discovering feminism and can see that a lesbian path is liberatory, but maybe they benefit from living with their husband who keeps a roof over their head and, you know, they may have dependencies in their heterosexual lifestyle. Do you have any advice for women who are feeling that stirring from within to to be lesbian and to come out and join with their sisters, but are really are quite invested still in, in patriarchal living? Well, of course, in many ways, heterosexuality protects women from the prejudice and bigotry that we inevitably face when we're out lesbians or choose to live without men. But it also is a terrible form of oppression and unhappiness for many women. And under patriarchy, under male supremacy, individual relationships between men and women can't be equal, even if there are some good examples of relationships between straight couples. The system is weighted against women and in favor of men. So I would say to those women, just bite the bullet, come out. You know, it's far, far better for women if you're looking for equality and if you're looking for liberation to shed heterosexuality. What is the role of lesbianism in the women's liberation movement, the political movement? Well, lesbians have always been at the forefront of any anti-violence against women struggles. So we recognize that male violence is played out through heterosexuality in order to keep their power. And often, you know, it certainly used to be the case anyway, less so now, lesbians had fewer obligations that would keep them away from political activism. They didn't have to look after men and they weren't rearing children. But also we knew oppression firsthand. Obviously all women are oppressed, but many women refuse to see their oppression in relation to men that they're in relationships with because they're supposed to love these men, enjoy having sex with them, give birth to their children, raise their sons. Whereas with lesbians, when we face oppression from men, it's not disguised in that way. It's straightforward violence and bigotry and depression. Do you think any woman can be a lesbian at any age? Of course. I I don't believe that we should prescribe to women what they should do, who they should sleep with, how they should feel. But there are so many women suppressing feelings of desire for other women, of romantic feelings for other women, of interest in other women, of wanting to spend their time with other women, whether it's sexually or platonically. And they should shed that inhibition. Of course, women can be lesbians at any age.
Is there anything else you would like to say to our largely lesbian feminist and radical feminist listeners? Yes, I'd like to say that more so than ever though, the feminist and lesbian community is under dreadful attack from men's rights activists, from misogynists, whether they come in the form of trans activists or the queer postmodern academics or the men who fight the custody of children and deny that women are ever, ever the victims of male violence. It's all the men's rights movement and we should resist it and we should be proud and we should regain our strength and our pride in being feminists and in being lesbians and we should be out and proud. The more we are out and proud, the more younger and newer women will come after us. She's a BD, baby dyke. She's a PD, possible, probable. She's a DD, yeah, she's a definite dyke. She's a P-O-U, positively one of us. She's got high LP, good potential. Suffering from PLT, pre-lesbian tension. It's a terrible thing to watch. She's a wannabe, a D-O-T. Well, if she can't be a dyke today, she can be a dyke of tomorrow. Then she'll be a D-I-T, a dyke in training, or an F-D-A. Future dyke of America, she'll be a Betty, a friend of Dorothy. She'll be our kind, that's okay. Leave that lesbian code. Is she Lithuanian? I know. Is she Lebanese? Well, she's gifted. She's Labesian, lesbonic, and I happen to know she's a vegetarian. <laughs> she's a member of the team. She's a member of the lodge of the family. She's a member of the church, of the club, of the committee, and she sings in the choir. Is she a lime of bean from Kentucky? Or is she a green new bean? Or is she refried? Is she a canned bean in the closet? Or is she now with a man? <gasps> then she's a has-been. No, she's a frisbean in Fresno. In Lansing, 48912. She lives in Dyke Heights. She's an Arkansas Earth Dyke Motor City Dyke. It goes to the pagoda with the Chinese. You bet she colors outside the lines in Charlotte. We leave that lesbian code. Is she an Aussie doik? Check it out. What do you reckon? She's a likely one, Spotto. Gotta be. Ah, she looks a bit sus. She must be of the faith. I'll put her on lay-by. She's a lesbian from New Zealand. She's compass from Aotearoa, kiwi fruit. You can spot the bus driver, spot the camp girl. She's on the bike. Campers are all tense. She's a houser mother. Over in Dublin, she's a whatever you're having in Belfast and Cork. She's a queer girl, a lash, got a glad eye, got a kick in her. She drinks every water. Oh, we lead that lesbian code. She's the Church of England. She's ginger. She's got Dutch boy fingers. <laughs> Gee, uh, she's an M.O.T., a member of the tribe. She's a gold star, got her ID card, and she shops at Tesco's. 
a sister of the inclination. She's elite in Scotland. Ahai, zap, she's all right. That's a hundred points. Is she a carpenter from Bristol? Is she a bus driver from Nottingham? Is she a motor dyke? Is she a badgy dyke? Does she live in the dykeria? Then she's a Fresbian in Fresno. In Lansing, 48912, she lives in Dyke Heights, sort of like 2040, Dyke Heights. She's an Arkansas Earth Dyke Motor City Dyke. It goes to the pagoda with the Chinese, you bet. She colors outside the lines in Charlotte. We lead that lesbian code. We Lesbian code, she's a lemon, she's a lezo. Lesbian, she's a big one, she's a bowler, she wears sensible shoes. Lesbian code, D L and D R. Dyke to the left, dyke to the right. Lesbian code, he got so from Israel, she's like that. That was the Alex Dobkin song, Lesbian Code. Next up, WLRN Sekhmet Sheowl speaks with writer and blogger Bev Joe. Bev has co-authored Dykes Loving Dykes, Dyke Separatist Politics for Lesbians Only, which she has since made available online for easy access. Here now is a portion of that interview. I was a girl trying to figure out how I feel, what is this? There was nothing positive anywhere about lesbians. So if I tried to look up what a lesbian meant, generally the dictionary, if there was anything at all, said having sexual relations with other females. And because sex was such a pornified word, that confused me because I didn't feel like I had sexual feelings towards other females. I was in love with other girls. But that felt very different. And I think that splitting the heart, mind, body is very much what het women do to keep being with men. The question isn't so much about why aren't they attracted to their own kind, but why are they attracted to males? I remember when I was in my first year of high school, I was in Catholic schools, and it was the last school day, and the biology teacher clearly had been putting it off, but thought she should explain to us what reproduction meant. And as she described, I mean, she could not hide her horror in describing it, and the girls were horrified. I mean, nobody thought, oh, I want to do that. I mean, they were just disgusted. This was before the media was so pornified. And then, of course, they worked very hard at trying to talk themselves into it because if they wanted to have a normal life, that's what they had to do. I remember my friends who were first starting to be heterosexual just being disgusted, but they just kept pushing themselves. So now it's even more confusing because they're starting girls much, much younger with the propaganda. But I think if women are really honest about it, they're going to find males repulsive. I, I don't get it. Now, those are two separate issues in a way, but if they're talking about not being attracted to or being repulsed by women, how can they be attracted to males? And if you think in terms of feeling love and in love, then the rest just flows naturally. In your book that originally came out in 1990, I think it was, yeah. called Dykes Loving Dykes, you talk about love being a choice, whether a woman chooses mm-hmm. to be a lesbian, heterosexual, or bisexual. Mm-hmm. And, or celibate. Or mm-hmm. celibate. Um, and I throw that in because it's an important choice to mm-hmm. acknowledge. 
But most people these days, including a lot of lesbians, believe that sexual orientation is not a choice and it's something that is intrinsic to every person the way that, say, your skin color is intrinsic um, and unchangeable. So could you give us your perspective on that debate? Mm -hmm. And especially I'd like to know, what do you say to lesbians who feel that not only were they born lesbian and couldn't be anything else, but that they reject the idea that any woman could choose to be? That's where the issues get all confused. They were born lesbians. We were. It's that simple. But then for those who feel that, and they're saying, well, but other women were born het, they're trying to protect those women, and they're lying to themselves, I think. If you look at the history of how lesbians have been treated and the race and lied about, it's very right-wing politics. That is what they said about us before there was a lesbian feminist movement. That's what the psychologists said. I mean, they also said we were mentally ill and, you know, we should have lobotomies and shock treatments and be drugged or killed. In some countries, we're still executed. So it's very, very right-wing. We were the few freaks that were born that way. And that changed with lesbian feminism because this enormous number of women who previously had only thought of themselves as heterosexual came out. And that gave a lot more status to the lesbian community. And it brought a lot more privileged women, privileged on a lot of levels. Because previously the lesbian community, I mean, I think they were probably some little secret groups for the privileged, but otherwise it was the bars. So the stereotype is not privileged. So anyway, that old right wing was erased by lesbian feminism who were very eager to say, we choose to be lesbians. We're not like the old stereotype of born this way, can't help it, perverts. We choose it. It's a political decision, but also a choice of love. And our strength is in that. We're choosing to not be men. And a lot of them, most of them have been heterosexual. They wanted to make sure everybody knew that too. So the next thing I want to ask is, what is friendship and community like for lesbian feminists? And do you think that lesbians experience friendship differently from heterosexual women? Oh, absolutely. Because heterosexual women's main allegiance is to men. And depending who the men are, whether it's their men, their husbands, boyfriends, sons, brothers, whatever, whoever it is, if those men sexually assault a girl, woman, or lesbian, they very likely will support the man. And that certainly damages friendship. And I'm partly joking. I mean, it's just like you're talking about a collaborator population who's selling out their own people. And the level of friendship is going to be very different than with lesbians who are invested in their own people. A class difference among lesbian friends and relationships or not in terms of, I mean, it isn't always there, but the willingness once they're with a lover, they don't really care that much about their friends, which I think does a lot of damage to communities. So I always think it's extremely important to be committed to friends and not having the lovers interfere with friendships and time spent with friends. For women who have not thought of themselves as lesbians before, mm-hmm. but who are feminists and who are mm-hmm. who are experiencing mm-hmm. that consciousness raising, but who are sort of in doubt that they can be lesbians because they haven't identified as that before? How would they make that choice? Well, I think to follow their hearts, as part of being feminist, it's important to explore all the propaganda from patriarchy. I had a discussion with one of our group members a while ago. She didn't want to call herself a lesbian because she still felt occasional. She's a really sordid term about having a twinge in her crotch 
with thinking about certain men. I mean, to me, that's putting it on the level that's really pornifying yourself. And I said to her, well, you know there's embeds and there's subliminals in the media. So while you're watching something, it could be anything. But certainly commercials used to do it to sell products. You're being bombarded with all kinds of stuff. And to, like for, for women to think about that and explore, if they're feeling attracted to males, what is that? Is that real? Is it from characters in the media that they have thought were attractive and that they're like have taught themselves to be interested in? Or if they're basically feeling like they're celibate, and well, that's easier then. You, so you just sort of let yourself have friendships with other girls and women and let yourself feel whatever be the natural feeling of love. And then it just flows from there is what I think. But it has to be a constant struggle to eliminate the lesbian hating, too, that we're bombarded with. And female hating. Because really, I, sometimes I would wonder, like if I was just a young girl now, I was trying to figure out, am I attracted to women in terms of what I see and who I see in the media? It's so repulsive. I mean, the women are so grotesque. The way they dress and look, the makeup, and having their breasts hanging out, and the high heels, and the expressions, it's all so creepy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that would make it hard for girls and women who are thinking about they would like to be attracted. Like, who even looks real? <laughs> I mean, there aren't too many, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of that's got to be deliberate. Just like the massive amount of smoking that's in the media, even though ads aren't allowed now. But the movies and TV shows where characters are centered around smoking, that's all very deliberate. So I think the female-hating stuff, making females be horribly grotesque in a way men are never expected to look, has an effect. Or then women who do become lesbians start teaching themselves to fetishize that look and think that that's what they're attracted to. But nobody in their right mind would be attracted to it if they weren't being affected by influences outside of themselves. Still, females, I think, can find each other and their attraction to females in their lives if they're open to that. Through feminist consciousness raising, it seems like some women discover that they can, in fact, feel attracted to other women and fall in love with other women. Yes, that's Um, what happened all the time in the 70s. And it's not something that's forced or artificial, Mm -mm. or it's not that they're pretending because of their politics. It's because of their politics removing all of the pro-male, heterosexual propaganda, female-hating crap that they used to believe in. Well, it's almost like their whole lives. They had to hold back their feelings for other girls and then women. And then suddenly, this whole world opens up. In the early 70s, it was so powerful. It was just amazing. All these women who had found feminism and then just started falling in love with other women. And yeah, it was like that should have been happening through their whole lives. So is there anything else you want to say to our listeners about lesbian relationships, love, or just lesbian existence? (laughs) I mean, it's the best if a woman wants a real, loving, lover relationship. She's going to be with another woman, and she's not going to get it from a man. At best, he won't be abusive, but it's just not going to be the same. And it's not about sex in terms of it. It's about love and what flows from that. It's just the most ecstatic, magical thing someone can experience in terms of love and relationship. And to our lesbian listeners, is there anything Mm. you'd like to tell them? What we got is the best. It's a Joan Armour trading song about her being harassed with her lover for being a lesbian. And that's the line, what we got is the best. But 
it could be much, much better if lesbians figure out how they're betraying themselves and other lesbians and stop being so self-hating. And it's on a level that every group has to deal with and go through. So, yeah, it all should just be very clear. It should have all been solved by now, but it hasn't. There's a lot of reasons why. Our book explains in a lot more detail about why. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's, Women's Liberation, Liberation Radio, Radio, Radio News. News. In their 1970 essay, The Woman Identified Woman, the feminist collective called Radical Lesbians wrote, A lesbian is the rage of all women condensed to the point of explosion. I want to correct that definition. A lesbian is the love of all women, condensed to the point of liberation. A lesbian is a woman who loves women and only women, and in doing so, a woman who is free. A woman as free as any female can be while men and patriarchy exist. A lesbian is a woman who is fortunate enough to know the sweetest, most genuine and profound love possible, love between women. To choose a life of loving women and only women, openly, publicly, day in and day out, is to face the hatred and disgust of the entire society outside of the lesbian community, the rape and death threats of heterosexual men in every sector of the political spectrum, the unapologetic persecution, pornification, and dehumanization that global heterosexual culture is full of. It is to face the rejection of family and friends, the social isolation that fills the void of lesbian community and persistent cultural invisibility. Lesbians in every part of the world choose to face all of these consequences and more, because despite the pain and suffering of these injustices, lesbian love is too sublime to sacrifice. When you love another woman, you love and adore her in her wholeness, her face, her smile, her name, the way she laughs, the way she orders her food, the way she sings along to the radio when you're riding in the car together. You love the way she thinks, her sense of humor, the goodness in her heart. Everything that makes her weird, everything that makes her unique among women, even her flaws that you find you can live with, all the small details that make her who she is, those are the things you remember, the things you dream about the things you miss when she's gone. Loving a woman is loving everything that makes her real. To love a woman is to walk beside her with your arm linked in hers, feeling full of pride and satisfaction because the world can see you with her. The joy of loving a woman is in the comfortable silence between you as you sit outside and watch the sunset. But it's also in the conversations that last for hours and leave you feeling like you can trust her with all of yourself. The joy is in a slow dance when you're close enough to smell her and see that soft twinkle in her eye. It's in the way she takes your hand as you stand with her, thigh deep in the sea and look at the stars with the rest of the world far behind you. The bliss of loving a woman is the bliss of deep, passionate friendship of spiritual connection so electric that you're sure you must have loved her in another life and the universe wants you to be together in this one. It is the bliss of holding her in your arms and feeling safe 
and loved and wanted. The bliss of a tender kiss, the softness of her lips and the warmth of her body next to yours. When your heart feels like a small sun glowing in your chest, when you feel that love in every cell of your body until it seems like that's all you're made of, then you've got the best this life has to offer a woman. The intensity, the authenticity, and the well-being of lesbian love are unparalleled in the female experience. To love one of your own kind, someone who always sees your humanity, who respects you and cares for you as only women can care for other women and all living things. To share the greatest intimacy of mind, body, heart, and spirit with another woman, one who knows and experiences the same oppression and wants to protect you from it, is to experience the love that all women deserve. Not the shallow fantasies of heterosexual romance we've been sold since girlhood, but real love. Love that honors you, liberates you, nurtures you, comforts you, and strengthens you. And when it comes to radical feminism, dedicating your life, your body, and your heart to loving women injects your politics and the feminist movement itself with the greatest power available to you. The only feminist power, the only female power there is, lies in that love. Living in love for another woman, or even the hope of love, can give a lesbian feminist the strength and courage and presence of mind to fight against the never-ending assault from men and their handmaidens. Going home to a woman you love, a woman who lights up when she sees you and touches you with such care and gentleness, is so often the only refuge you have in your female and lesbian existence. But it is the most comforting refuge a woman could have. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstances of your life, lesbian love and friendship make living in men's world worthwhile. Nothing can extinguish the ecstasy of love between women, and that love, like a flame that burns through a hurricane, will always prevail. That love is the reason lesbians survive. They are women willing to risk it all for love, willing to die for love, because nothing compares to it. Nothing compares to the power, the beauty, the joy, and the pleasure of that love. That concludes our 14th edition podcast for Thursday, June 1st, 2017. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in for our next edition on women's spirituality. It will be airing on July 6th. Be sure to like, share, and comment on today's edition and become a fan of WLRN's Facebook page. It's listed under Women's Liberation Radio News. Also, if you'd like to make a guest commentary, please contact us. We are your community radio station in the Femisphere and wish to include all women's voices. Commentaries must be pre-approved and no longer than three minutes in length. If you do not have access to recording equipment, we can help you with that. Until next time, this is Thistle Pedersen signing off. And this is Jenna DeCuardo. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with WLRN or are interested in volunteering, please email us at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Niall Pierce. I'm Sekhmet Shiaul. Thanks to your generous donations, we've reached our goal for station t-shirts. As promised, we will award two lucky winners in a t-shirt lottery we'll share with you in the coming month. 
be sure to follow our Facebook page for updates. We at WLRN thank you for your support. Sisterhood is powerful. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Tell me, where is my home? Cause gender hurts.